Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the Post podcast. Gus Casteros here, in person, once again. It's your third time here. I believe this is episode 74. I should know these things of Off the Post. Um, and your number th- you're already at, at guest appearance three. It's pretty impressive. You're, you're moving up the ranks in terms of uh, who's been on the podcast a lot. You figure once every 25 spots I'm in there. <laughs> there you go. You're also wearing a, a Hartford Whalers hat right now. So I you, actually, you need to uh, you know go go down a rabbit hole a little bit here. So I actually had a really cool black, really heavy knit toque. Um, I had it for maybe three years, and I went to the Killers concert a couple of weeks back, and I left the toque in the Air Canada Center. Oh man! So if anybody happened to catch a black <laughs> toque in the Air Canada Center with a Hartford Whalers <laughs> logo, that's mine. PSA. <laughs> that's what we do around here. So now I have to settle for this. I mean, it's the green, Hartford green. But, I like it. But it's not the black that I really liked. Oh, well, it's, yeah. And it, it sucks Hartford. when you, you leave it at, like, a venue and you're like, I'm never getting that thing back. I wanted to tweet Kyle Dubas and say, hey, Kyle, if you meet, <laughs> if you can't swipe me. If you're cleaning the aisles, you know, <laughs> in between uh, Tell Lou to give my hat back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, anyways, Gus, uh, you are an analyst for McKean's Hockey. Uh, you're prevalent on hockey Twitter. Uh, anyone listening to this probably knows who you are based on that. Uh, I love your your insight. It's unique. Uh, there aren't too many people out there that are that are mixing video with analytics and with some old school thinking as well. Uh, there's a lot of well-roundedness to the way you see the game. And uh, much like the second time you were on this podcast, I want to talk about a certain position. Uh, this one being all about the forward position and just you know what I think I think sometimes podcasts are too structured. Let's let's just see where this takes us. And with with the overarching theme of of this forward position and how it's evolved over the last let's say ten to twenty years, like we're we're really in interesting times. I think for the NHL, um, we're past the stage of oh you know skating and skill. It's very important, and we're sort of in the second stage, the the evolved version of that, or um, the next stage of that, where okay now we have all this skill, all this speed. How do how does player X? differentiate himself from player Y, Z, and, and all the way down the list. Um, so, to start, let, let's let's talk about the 2017-18 rookie class because there's a, a handful of names there uh, that are either in contention for uh, the Calder Trophy or just, you know, players that, that pique my interest. Um, let's start with Clayton Keller. Sort of He's he's flown under the radar lately, as as Matthew Barzell, who we're talk who we'll talk about, and Brock Besser, who we'll talk about, have have taken center stage. But um, Clayton Keller, this is a guy who might have been forgotten about or or buried for a few years in the minors. Uh, if we're talking about 10, 20 years ago, but now um, with a little seasoning, was thrown into the lineup and. Um, Right now, as, as we're talking, which is Thursday night, he's got 14 goals, 20 assists, and, and 46 games for one of the worst teams in the league. So <laughs> he's doing all right. It's kind of interesting, though. He was the one that began the chatter for the Calder Trophy. He was the guy that came out of the gate and just smashed broken Arizona Coyotes record in terms of goal scored and a minimum amount of games. Uh, and then he cooled off. And once he cooled off, Brock Besser picked up that ball, and he ran with it, and he's been pretty hot since. And, you know, bubbling in the background, there's always been the Matthew Barzell. So we've had the front, at least the face of the Calder Trophy race, in Keller and Besser kind of, I guess, interchanging after Mm -hmm. one got hot and one got cold. And you still have Barzell, who's just saying, hey, guys, hold on a sec, I'm still here. (laughs) And they each have a distinct asset that makes them very special 
Um, they're all very young. And as you said, you know, back in the day, these guys all probably would have still been either in their minors or in the junior leagues or wherever the case is, seasoning. There's no more seasoning in today's NHL. There's the economics of the situation plus the actual skill level of these forwards coming up through the developmental leagues is off the charts to the degree that you just can't deny them a roster spot if they they don't just go and try out. They're winning these spots outright and beating out other players. Um, it, it's hard to actually pick who of the three will end up with the hardware in the end of the year, but they should just split it three ways because the entertainment <laughs> value that all three of these guys are giving, not just their individual fan bases. I mean, you could see Barzil highlights up and down Twitter, and I'm sure Facebook is the same. They're just doing remarkable things at a young age. What do you, what do you think of Barzell? Like, what's unique about him? Because... Uh, he strikes me as a guy who, um, you know, goes 16th overall in 2015, and you don't hear a ton of chatter about him until he arrives on the scene, and and becomes this dynamic player. Uh, you know, there's a lot, there's there's the buzzword of puck possession, just because of of course and everything. But Matt Barzell is actually a possession player in terms of having the puck on his stick a lot. Like I feel like when player tracking you know, fingers crossed, finally arrives down the road, I think his stats will just be through the roof because of the, the amount of, uh, of time the puck is actually on his stick. And he's able to protect it, even though he's not he's not the biggest guy in the world. And he makes a lot of smart decisions with the puck. What do you think, though, really separates him? Like, when you're watching Matt Barzell, what's a Matt Barzell trait? So, one of my core staple skills for any player in the NHL or any professional hockey player I should say right now is first two-step quickness the NHL hockey in general yeah is about creating separation when you got the puck and closing down gaps when you don't have them and Barzell's got that two-step acceleration just down pat there was a clip the other night where he was shown where he would skate with the puck into the offensive zone throw it into an area skate to that area get the puck move it and pass it to himself, skate to that area, get the puck. So those first two, three steps are what really separate him from the rest of the pack. Add together the fact that he's creative, very little good skill at the end of the stick, a playmaker versus a shooter, and playmakers versus shooters is a big differentiation. Um, They both uh, take different routes to create offense, and they're generally a a, a symbiotic pairing. but he can find players in the slot. He can find players where you don't even think that the player is going. He's putting pucks in spaces where players will be rather than where they are. Um, the creativity in the offensive vision is just off the charts. Um, we could make a nitpick about defense, but at this point in time, considering the amount of time that he has possession of the puck, you don't need to really play defense if you have the puck. And that's essentially the core crux of possession, getting that puck back. Yeah, him and him and Besser are an interesting pair to watch go through this season, and the remarkable single game performances. Barzell's had two five point games. Besser's had his, uh, you know, overtime goals or just highlight reel goals where he's got that quick release. What, what pl- not necessarily Besser versus Barzell, but what kind of player would you rather have? I'm more of a I'm going to take the goal scorer over the playmaker. Just because I feel like they 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 finish the job, a playmaker still needs someone else to to finish the job. I, I I would rather have the guy pulling the trigger. What about you? So I would always take a goal scorer simply because of the fact that a goal scorer doesn't need a playmaker. To your point, a playmaker needs somebody to finish. Um, sometimes a play is just simply getting the puck on net and hoping that a rebound or a dirty goal or something just kind of happens. Playmakers make that happen. Goal scorers either have to be in the spot to take the shot get to the spot to take the shot take the abuse to get to the spot to take the shot and risk themselves to get to the spot to take the shot so while they're using different skills to essentially try to i guess generate as much offense as they can the goal scorer will do it by instinct the playmaker requires help and that's not necessarily a bad thing because i mean look at joe thornton there's probably no better player in the league that's any better underneath the goal line and with his vision and, and creativity he's able to do things with the puck on his own and that individualism is also very important for a playmaker which Barzell really really demonstrates um, and he does enough on his own to either attract attention 
and create holes and openings for his teammates to get into those holes and openings, and that's where the playmaker really shines. The goal scorer has to get into those openings. So the Jonathan Chichu year when Joe Thornton <laughs> yes. was holding the puck and, and really doing all these little things, and Chichu knew, just get here and I'll get a scoring chance, that's what a good goal scorer does. Yeah, what Chichu is literally like an X's and O's thing. Like the, the coach or Thornton maybe on the bench is like, here is a spot you need to go on the ice. I will get you the puck at some point during the shift. Just slide it into the net. Like, and, uh, but but I feel like you know a guy like Besser, you know, conversely, uh, he can drive a line himself. Uh, and I think you mentioned the word instincts. Whenever I watch Besser, it just seems like not only is he in the right place at the right time, but he knows, like, it's almost like he the puck's coming to him and he's already decided where he's going to put the puck. Like, you know, top shelf. You know, it, sometimes he takes he takes long shots from far away that are along the ice, which I don't think is, is too common. I mean, you'd have to kind of look into a lot of video, but that seems, like, you know, counterintuitive, but he does it because he sees, say, oh, I see a 5 hole or, you know, a uh, low blocker side, so I'm just going to fire it there. Like, there's... The instincts, that word sticks with me when I when I watch uh, Besser and how he operates in the offensive zone and, and really pounces on that, that split second of, 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 you know, goal or no goal. And it's interesting, so that specific point, because Barzell's a much better skater. Clayton Keller is also a much better skater. Besser, Besser's like, is he, is he above average or average? Like, he's nothing special, right? Uh, I don't really want to go to average, above, or but he's just not a very... Right, not elite. NH, yeah, he's not an elite skater. That word gets tossed out a lot, but in this case, it's really apt. Because Barzell's an elite skater. Oh, it looks absolutely. like it to me, and same is Same with Keller. Yeah. Like, the things that they can do on their edges and... and and it's not just straightaway speed, and they can do directional shifts and cuts and things that Besser is okay at but not great at. But to your point, he'll find something and try to exploit either the space or whatever it is to get a shot on goal, create offense. And while all three of these players drive play, they do it in very different ways. Besser might be the least mobile, but one of the better in terms of the instinct to score goals. And, you know, we actually have a very practical example of something like okay. that. Remember when the Leafs traded for Phil Kessel? Yes. The major narrative at that point was how he wasn't going to be as successful in Toronto simply because he didn't have Mark Savard. I got into a little bit of trouble with some other people, but I'm going to leave it at, I'm going to leave that story for another podcast. Okay, okay. But I went back and I watched some of the video of Kessel playing with Savard. And just from my own subjective view, I found that I think that it was 42 goals or something like that. Um, that Kessel scored with Savard. Of those 42 goals, only six were really orchestrated, architected. Architected. Architected, yeah, we'll make that up. Stupid sure. word. Um, by Savard. Yeah. The rest was Kessel, or a combination of both. If he didn't do something and Kessel didn't do something, a goal wasn't going to be scored. So it's either a combo of both or distinct on the goal score. Kessel comes over here, no Mark Savard find secondary talent, he's scoring goals left and right. Why? Because a goal scorer knows how to score goals. Besser falls under that very category. He just knows how to score goals. Do you, do you know of, I don't know, is, is Kessel his comparable, his, his sort of peer that, that's further in, into his career? Or is there someone else? Like, do you think Besser, nah, maybe? Uh, maybe, maybe not Phil Kessel. Kessel's a bit of a, an enigma in that regard. I mean, he's not very fast. He's not very dynamic. He's not very, I mean, he's much more creative than we give him credit for. But, I mean, you know what he's going to do. He's going to cross over the blue line. He's going to get to the top of the circle, and he's going to fire a perfectly placed wrist shot, and everybody's going to go ooh and ah. That's not necessarily Besser. Right. He might get the oohs and ahs before the shot is even gone, and then he gets the ohs <laughs> once that shot goes I like in. these sound effects to describe them. Well, I mean, we're... I get, I get what you mean, though. I'm trying to give him a little bit of color here. Yeah. Um. So, Besser, 23rd in 2015, and... Anyone who listens to the podcast every episode, I, I spoke a bit about this with Michael Trakos in uh, yesterday's um, episode, but but sort of in passing. So I looked at it today, and so 23rd was Besser in that draft, 2015. 16th was Matthew Barzell. When you go through that draft, mind you, it, it's it's a very good draft. Um, it goes McDavid, Eichel, 4 is, is Marner, 5 is Hannafin, Pavel Zaka, Ivan Provorov, Zach Wierenski. You just go up and down the list. The one guy that sticks out is uh, Dylan Strom, third overall, 18 games played in the NHL, 
uh, by comparison, Barzell's got 48, so he's not exactly, um, you know, at the McDavid area of, of 173 or Eichel 186. But um, he's in the league. He's producing at a very high level while a guy like Dylan Strom is still in the AHL. He's playing well in the AHL. He's putting up numbers. You expect that to, to translate to some extent at the NHL level. But why – can you describe – or, or explain why Dylan Strom is in the spot that he's in, considering that draft and the talent in that draft and how he's sort of the one left behind. Because you look in the first round, and let me count right now. One, two, three, four. There's a handful of guys that have played less games than him, like literally six or seven out of out of 30. So it's just it just sort of doesn't really connect. But at the same time, I know Strom has his – his issues with the skating, and, and I don't know if there's anything else that you've seen. So to me, it's actually been a little bit of, I think that the main point is skating, as you say, but it's not just skating, it's pace. To me, it's not just about um, being able to skate in the NHL, because lesser skaters doing things that make themselves effective can play in the NHL for a very long time. Um I mean, Brett Hall wasn't a very good skater, but he scored goals just because he knew where to be to score goals. So I think that the biggest thing with Strom specifically, aside from his skating, is the pace of play. So he seems to either lag or he's supportive of the rush. He doesn't drive play, if you want to use that term. Um, And he's become a bit of a support player. Now, you could fix skating. I mean, we're in an era right now where, I mean, I, I should say that, Maybe I shouldn't say you could fix skating, but you can get help to do things to get sharper edges, better um, better explosiveness off the off the mark. Uh, those two stride that two stride acceleration yeah. is kind of missing. So I think that the combination of pace, a little bit of that acceleration, and a little bit of lag of the play has kept him in the AHL. Now pace in the AHL is very different from pace in the NHL. Once you got the puck in the NHL, there's players on you. Not player, players. So you've already been targeted through systematic processes instilled by coaching staffs to get that puck back. In the AHL, you have a little bit more room to move, a little bit more room to maneuver, and perhaps just that lower pace, even if it's just a smidgen, um, gives him the opportunity to just light up the AHL the way that he's doing this year. Yeah, it's 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 sort of emblematic of of the way that the game is now and the players that are coming through because this is something that I was thinking about while I was at the World Junior Championships in Buffalo. So I'm, I'm there for a few days. I'm watching as many games as I can. And it dawns on me that 90% of the players there skated well, had skill, and this is defense forwards. Like, it was almost like a bunch of clones. Obviously, guys stood out. There were the high-end guys. There were the, you know, middle of the pack and guys who were just, you know, a a step behind in in skating or skill. But it dawned on me that from a scouting perspective, I feel like things have shifted. Um, You're not necessarily looking for the the physical guy that you might draft in the fifth round. It's like, you you know, you're not necessarily uh, looking for a guy who's really good in the the face-off circle. Um who can kill penalties it's it's now becoming just you know can that guy skate first of all that's the first you know thing on the list how's this guy's skill what's his finishing ability like i know those were always important but i feel like the checklist has has kind of diminished and it's only like a handful of things and if you can't meet the quota in those things you're not even on an on the radar of nhl teams i don't know if 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 i if this is making sense this is just something that i've internally thought about but that's exactly how i would picture um, non-statistical evaluation of players. Um, you know, it, it's not wrong to say or to evaluate a player based on those raw skills, but I don't think that in today's age we can do that anymore. What we need to do and what they should have been doing 10 or 20 years ago, and good scouts will tell you this, it's not the individual skills. Being a good skater is just not good enough. It's what are you doing with those peripheral skills and putting them into a package that creates an NHL player. Right. It's not just being a good skater. It's being a good skater and being in good position, being coachable, being um, 
smart enough to understand where you should be on the ice. It's being in a support position when you should be in a support position. It's getting back into your position. It's having good feet and good enough hands and good enough awareness to be in that position to uh, move the play up, take a shot, whatever the case is. So it's the integration of skills that's more important than the individual traits. I often talk about the four S's of scouting, speed, skills, smart, skating. You can have elite skills. You could be an elite skater, but not really be an NHL player because you can't put those skills together to create a type of character that's required in order to play effectively in today's NHL. Is the brain what what puts it all together? Like, man, I can't underestimate. I can't over. How do you quantify smarts? You quantify it by. It's tough. It's a, it's a question that I've struggled with myself. You just know when you see a player. To me, I've kind of used more of a systems-related approach okay, rather than a skills-related approach. A smart player will um, understand where he is in the lineup in accordance to where the play is. When we have the puck, where is he on the ice in relation to that? Is he driving it? Is he supporting? Um, and here's another one, and I use this uh, example a lot. We have moved away from wingers and centers. We become F1, F2, F3. Yes. So forward, the forward position itself has changed dramatically. Specifically, I would say even from the first lockout in 2005-06, the skating and the mobility and the skill and all that changed the way that we end up playing the game. So a winger, and I'm going to use names just so we're... Yeah, no, do it, do it. So Tyler Bozak, James Van Riemsdyk, and Mitch Marner are on the X. Okay. Puck goes back into the Leafs end. Bozak and Marner are caught in the offensive zone because they were taking a very deep offensive chance. Sure. And that's fine. And they're getting themselves back into the play. James Van Riemsdyk is the first forward. So he's the F1. He's the first guy that goes into the defensive zone. He has to play as a center. He can't be the winger that he is because a winger's job is just to make sure to patrol that top of the zone but he has to play the center's duties and be supportive of the defense. So the puck goes in deep, and now the other team has control, and they're starting to build their cycle. Van Riemsdijk is now playing the center's role. Bozak has to recognize that as the natural center on that line and assume the winger's role. And when they have a chance, they switch. <laughs> Those positional switches, kind of like what I yeah, just Yeah, you, did, you just hit, just so people are listening, yeah, he hit the... What is it called? A pop filter attached to the microphone. So they have to be able to switch those positions. It's got to be seamless because if it isn't seamless, you create holes and seams that are able to get pucks through. At the same time, Bozak has to recognize that he's got it. He's the center. Either talk, communication, or just essentially recognize. That's what smarts is. And I'm going to give you a practical example from a Leaf game that happened two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, Michael Delzato got a penalty. Leafs are on the power play. Vancouver kills off the penalty. Delzato comes out of the box. Right. The player who comes out of the box assumes a winger's duty because, essentially, from a positional perspective, you're playing a center, a winger, and two defensemen on the penalty kill unless there's some crazy systematic rule or, right. or whatever the coach you want to try. But, essentially, that's what you're doing. Yeah. So, the player that comes out of the box is becoming a de facto winger. Delzato went right back to his defensive position. He assumed that right defensive spot when there was somebody already occupying that, and he created a hole at the top of the zone. Now, the Leafs didn't end up scoring in that situation. But you were just watching going, what are you doing? Exactly. You can't assume you're natural, but you have to play that assigned position because that's how you're able to get the most effective coverage. Two games later, doesn't Roman Polak do the exact same thing? (laughs) So that's where you start looking at the effectiveness of players understanding where they should be positionally on the ice, and it's an element of smarts. And it's an element of understanding where they should be in relation to where the puck is. And if they went back and started playing defense and left that hole at the top of the zone, what's going to happen? Everybody's going to collapse into the center and and try to protect the house, but you're going to leave a big swath of open ice that teams are going to exploit. That's what smarts is. Yeah, and adapting and and computing and, and like, say you step over the boards, or sorry, you jump over the boards, and you just scan you scan the ice as as say a winger like you need to at that very moment know how you fit into this system we'll call it or or this uh, lay of the land where you know that wh- whatever's going on in the corner um, at the point 
in front of the net, you have a role in, in your in your team and you need to get there ASAP and fulfill it. Are you are you seeing that more players are adapting better nowadays? Like is it is it sort of it's less rigid? So there's a, a great example of that simply in the way that teams are starting to approach their offensive zone play. Um, a good active and the defenseman we've talked about this already I'm not going to rehash too much of it but def- the defensive position has changed dramatically and they can assume forward positions in the play and the forward before tech- you keep going it's uh, episode 57 if you want to listen to uh, me and Gus talk about the evolution of defensemen there you go continue um, forwards need to be able to not just cover the spot at the point where the defenseman pinches or something. They have to flow with that play. There's a cycling effect to a player pinching down and somebody taking over and the defenseman coming over to make sure that there's uh, enough coverage in in the most important areas in the offensive zone. To the same degree that the defenseman pinching down becomes a forward, now the forward has to assume defensive duties. If the play turns the other way, then God help that forward because they aren't used to playing that defensive position, the pivots, the turns. It's something that you have to develop over time, over a career. It's not something that you could just do just because you happen to be in that position. In today's world, though, the way that these athletes are being developed, they are understanding that you need to have a bit of a more, bigger package. So you got guys that can do those positional shifts and directional cuts and, and the pivots that a defenseman requires. So the forward position is evolving to the degree that they've adapted and integrated defensive skills into their skill set, even though we don't really see them on such a widespread occasion. Who's your favorite player that is sort of exactly what you're talking Patrice about? Patrice Bergeron. Yeah. I can't, I can't, oh my It's God. almost a cliche answer, but he's that good that but you can't not say him. Most teams now will try to play a, for, uh, a center up high just so that they have that either mid-lane drive or being able to cover the points um, or being able to do what I call a pincer where they kind of just uh, – the defensive team tries to create a shell around the puck yep. carrier, yep. and you have somebody that kind of hovers behind that shell to be the option okay. so they can get the puck out. That's Patrice Bergeron. And there's lots of really good examples of that. Martin Hansel is also a very good huh. example. Um, I could probably go through each team and name a player that would probably fit one of those roles, and they're not all defensive players. Most of the time, these players are playing these positions because they understand in order to do this – we get scoring opportunities. You're not doing it to play defensively or just to be positionally smart. You're doing it to generate offense. So as good as Bergeron is, there are lots of other players that are able to do things like that. Um, Barkov in Florida is a great example. We could gush over the Penguins and you know even the Islanders. Like We look at John Tavares and Matthew Barzell and all that kind of stuff. But guys like, like Brock Nelson is pretty good at it. Maybe not a big name, but... He really excels doing stuff like that. Andre Kopitar in L.A., um, San Jose, Joe Pavelski. Like, I mean, I can go on and on and on and on and name just names all over the place. But those are the type of players that are kind of like the glue players. And those are the guys that are going to um, either help keep the puck in and generate offense. I feel like when you're talking about all those players and I'm picturing them playing, something that comes to mind is is that they're always engaged. They're always somehow involved in the play, whether it's, if they're a few feet from the puck battle, they're there for whatever's going to happen next, and they're probably going to be in the right spot because they're generally smart players. And then when they have the puck, they're doing something with it. They're not just you know uh, tossing it in into the offensive zone and going off for a change. Like these guys make make hockey plays, make um, make plays that that contribute to their team. Uh, you know, in all three zones, even in the neutral zone, they're all pretty good transition players. Um, what are the roles like? Let's talk about the forward position from a role perspective. Like, if you're putting together a line in 2018, I you know ideal circumstances, you know forward one, forward two, forward three. What do you want to see? What what sort of all blends together um, from a traits perspective? Do you want a playmaker, a puck retrieval guy, and a and a trigger man, or two trigger men and and, and a playmaker? Like, w- let's let's talk about just hypothetical ideal world what do you want so it's a bit of a tough question simply because you know the the real answer should be you want three skilled players up front Um, you want three smart skilled players up front at the same time you know if you have an all-star defenseman like drew dowdy let's say in the back end there you could put a middling skilled forward up there 
And as long as they understand where they should be in relation to the puck, and you got an elite guy back there who's able to either move it quickly, um, skate it up on their own as long as they got coverage, um, the forwards that you need aren't as uh, cookie-cutter as we had in the past. Playmaking center, goal-scoring winger, bigger bruiser to be getting into the corners and all yep, of that. Yep. I don't really think that you need that that much anymore. You don't need the bruiser. You want to be physical, and I'm not going to back away because I think that physicality is important in hockey. You just don't want to be stupid about it. You don't go hitting something for the sake of hitting. There has to be a forward attempt, or there has to be something that drives the play forward. Yeah, like there's a there's a reason behind it. Correct. It's there for a purpose to move the play into a scoring opportunity, and I use that example a lot. So if it had to be me, and I'm looking at a scoring line right now, you clearly one probably have your best players probably a center. Most of the time, that's the truth. Not necessarily so, but most yeah, of the like time, Taylor Hall is is going to drive a line on absolutely, the wing. And there's absolutely. other examples, but I mean, I don't know what the percentage would be, but it's probably like eight out of ten. Yeah, it's not going to be a very high percentage. Our, our centers that are the, the top guy, and then you want guys that are able to either pull the trigger. You want guys that are kind of shooters. I actually wouldn't mind three playmakers on the same line as long as one of them understands that, you know, in order to score a goal, someone has to get into those dirty areas. So I'm looking less about the type of skill, sorry, the type of player that they are up front, and I'm looking forward to the way that they adapt. And I say this a lot. It's the way that they adapt position to position. The okay. James Van Riems like yes. example is, is the biggest one that I say. You have to be able to play your position, adapt and move into another position if need be, and intelligently shift back into your natural spot. What if you this, – this came up a lot when Kessel first ended up in Pittsburgh. This idea of having more than one puck carrier on a line creates almost like a mental block for, for the, the player that doesn't have the puck. You know, they're crossing the blue line without the puck, and they're, it's sort of like – this isn't how it works. I'm supposed to be the guy that's bringing it over, and it's not a selfish thing. It's just that's the way that's always been. They've always been the guy on the line carrying the puck. So Kessel and Crosby wasn't working. Kessel and Malkin wasn't working. Do you think that that is something that needs to be considered? Say, if you're a coach of an NHL team, do you want one puck carrier on each line, or do you think that's sort of just a Kessel thing? You know, in this particular situation, it might just be a Kessel thing. But for the most part, I think that there's enough of the science behind offensive production that is beginning to take over in the way that players adapt themselves in the offensive zone. You want to make sure that you're in a triangle. You want to be always make sure that you're an option if you don't have the puck. So uh, to your point, skating over the blue line without the puck when you're naturally have, and you know this is a lot of NHL players because as they develop, they were the They're players. They're the guy. On they the, were the yeah. ones that were carrying everything and doing everything. Now you have to adapt. Um, and players normally, I think, are able to do that simply because I think that there's a bit more of a, um, I hate using the word, but there's a rigidity in the systems that are implemented by coaches. And what I like to use is structure, not systems. A system is rigid. Right. Structure allows it to breathe. Okay. You can kind of move in and out and transfer positions and, and make the play big or make the play small. And you try to adapt to those changes and conditions. Players going over the blue line now understand you're either taking it really wide or driving it into the net. Whatever happens after that puck breaks the plane of the blue line, the guy that doesn't have the puck has to understand where they are and get to that specific position. So if you were a playmaker in the past, you were making plays to shooters. You've now become the shooter. Yeah, act, you know, you have to your mindset, act like that. Yeah. So you've adapted the way that you've I shouldn't say that they've adapted, but they've changed the way that, that players approach their own specific style in the offensive zone. And the NHL is a bit of a a, a crazy animal where things change so rapidly and, and they try these crazy new things like that drop pass in the neutral zone on the power play that drives me absolutely crazy. But teams Risky. are doing different things and they're, and players have to be able to understand that they have to be more than what they were with before they were ever playing in the NHL. So, what about and I've talked about this on the podcast before uh, with other people. I'm curious your take on it. When you're setting your lineup as a coach, uh, how how much emphasis do you put on spreading the wealth versus loading up a front line? Um, 
or or uh, I guess it, it really depends on the personnel you have. But let's say your team has, you know, um, I don't know, five five, you know, or or your, let's just talk about your top six. You have two good scorers, two good playmakers, and two guys that are just sort of you know complementary. Is that how it works? Do you have one of each on 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 each of the two lines, or do you blend together the best players on one line and hope for the best with the second line? Like, well, yeah, it's it's hard without exa- like hard examples, but ph- philosophically, how, where do you land on that? That's kind of tough because I don't think that we're doing top six, bottom six anymore. We're clearly moving to a top, that's true yes. top nine, fourth line kind of. And you know, at some point, I think it was you that actually brought it up that it's eventually just going to become a top twelve, right? Yeah. Well, you would well, think, the way things are going. I mean, players are just so skilled at this point that you can easily put a skilled player on your fourth line. However, putting a skilled player on your fourth line, Connor Brown, that's a great example. Here you got a player that's not necessarily the most skilled. He uses a really good combination of whatever he has in his arsenal and a really good work ethic, and yet every once in a while he's going to see himself on the fourth line. He could do whatever he can on the fourth line as he does on the first line. It's just a matter of now you're playing against lesser competition on the fourth line potentially you're also probably trying to do more on your own because you don't have those elite teammates yes yes. um and i feel even though we have moved into that top nine you're still looking for those scoring opportunities you're trying to balance and if it was me and, and 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 i had to make those lineup decisions i'd want more balanced scoring rather than loading everything up on one line um that seems to be the consensus in the hockey world I guess in certain situations when it's six on five at the end of the game or it's the playoffs and you just need a double shift guys and you do that. But throughout a season, I feel like it's it's we've all decided spread the wealth. Whereas I feel like in the past, maybe there'd be more argument over that. I don't know if it's just because um, we've come to realize that, hey, this is a salary cap world and you're only going to have so many skilled, you know, finishers or, or whatever you're looking for. Um or, or if maybe the, the baseline of the average NHL player has gone up? Add tactics to that now. Because the reality here is, and, and this is where analytics has come in, we now know, although I tend to think that we're starting to move back to a different uh, mindset, we know that a controlled zone entry is more prevalent to a shot on goal right, than a than dump, dump in. Yeah. So now you got players that are in the third line who 10, 20 years ago were just dumping the puck, skate, 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 try to retrieve, cycle, 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 get a shot on goal. Now you got those third liners that are actually carrying the puck in over the blue and, and creating more offense. So the tactics on top of the skill have created this environment where you can be more balanced in your lineup and still generate as much offensive scoring chances simply they, because... They might not turn into goals, but you're at least throwing it's better. pucks on. Better that, than yeah. it was. Like The probability, yeah. if you're looking at it, from that's the word that we're looking for. The probability of generating scoring chances um, is much higher now simply because of the skills of the players and the tactics that they're used to generate those scoring chances. The old third line was you know, filled with a penalty killer or two, and like you said, they had some offensive capabilities, but their, their MO was... Let's dump it in. Let's cycle it. Let's tire the team out. Let's get a shot on goal and let's get off the ice. Like it was sort of like, don't get scored on. That was that was the goal. And and I feel like now, and and this is, you know, blends in perfectly with talking talking about how it's a top nine and not a top six. Now it's it's almost if you have three stars. Let's use the Penguins for example again. Kessel, Malkin, and Crosby on three different lines. No one bats an eye. It's like, well, yeah, of course you're going to do that because you want to have. Um, the other team looking over their shoulder three out of four shifts or, or even more than that by the end of the game considering the fourth line will barely play. <laughs> and you now have, you're forcing the other coach to actually deal with these situations. Who are you going to cover? Crosby? You're going to cover Malkin? Well, maybe if those two don't bite you, Phil Kessel will definitely bite you. So there's there's that, okay, well, I'm doing this. You have to go and figure out whatever counter that you're going to do. And then there's the, the chess match between how they're playing line by line. Um the other thing, too, though, especially with the Penguins in that regard, they have such a work ethic that Kessel being on that third line is really not even a third line anymore. And, you know, the third line from the Devils when they were in their heyday and John Madden yes, essentially doing what you just said, get that puck into the offensive zone, cycle, cycle, Kill cycle, penalties, cycle. win face-offs. Just don't give the other <laughs> team the puck to yes. give them the opportunity to score on us, and we'd be happy with Which that. isn't a terrible tactic if you think about it, like, 
if you if at the end of the year or at the end of the playoff series you end up um, with a higher goal differential than the other team, that's a win. But I feel like now it's almost uh, teams and and the league and and players in general coming through the league. They don't really think in that mindset. It's sort of I don't know. I don't know what what you really point to as the main reason. But here we are, and I don't know if there's a John Madden player out there anymore. Well, I, I don't think that we'll ever see like a, a third-line guy like that. There might be the odd fourth-line guy. I'm trying to think across the league. No, I don't know. That, that like, is so well-respected, like a Selkie candidate, but that has no offense. Like, I feel like that's just not a thing anymore. Those players don't, don't exist. If you can't do something to generate scoring chances, you don't have to score. You don't have to get a lot of points. You need to do something to help generate that scoring. Well, and, you know, we, we talked about puck carriers. You know, even if we go back to, to Barzell and Besser. So, let's say they were on the same line. Barzell's a puck carrier, Besser's the the trigger man, and then do they would they would they have a, a digger? So you know a guy if we keep it to the Leafs a Hyman or or a Connor Brown like do you I feel like there's there's sort of a niche there on every team to have a couple of those guys um, filling spots. They're usually relatively cheap because they're not going to put up gigantic numbers. Um, coaches love them like that's sort of that's become a role to be that guy and. And one guy that I don't think falls in the same category as a Hyman or a Brown, it would be an insult to him, Braden Point, who is much more skilled. But he has like the qualities of, of the workman um, forward and, and, and you know, back checks, four checks, you know, uh, is good at stripping pucks, like all these attributes. But he's also probably, you know, a smarter guy and, and has better hands. But his floor is sort of Connor Brown, but he's, he's moving way past that. I was a little skeptical of his really late performance last year and thought that, yeah, he's not going to be able to duplicate that. And my God, has he proven me wrong. Um, and, you know, it kind of goes a bit back to a bit of what we were discussing about how much more skilled players are now because they're developed at a much more skilled level. So these players are developing the, the skills to generate scoring chances. They're also putting themselves into position where they become the grinder on that line because they're closest to the puck. Or they have to be because it just it fell into their quadrant or, or whatever the case is. So they have to be able to shift from the skilled guy to the gritty guy and do something to get the puck back. They're a chameleon. They have to be. <laughs> they have to be as green as the hat that I'm wearing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. they, it's gotten to the point where you can't just be... Like, I mean, we all ooze... Or sorry, we all ooh and all over mm-hmm. the skill that these guys ooze, but... Um, they have to be able to. You don't have to grind it out. Like you, it's not like you have to go in there and, and, and muck it up in the corners. You need to get the puck back. Yeah. You need to do something to either hold up a player or 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 be in their way enough where you're allowing your other teammates to set up the play. So. And there's something to be said for being the first guy in the corner who's taking the hit and keeping the puck in the in the zone in the corner. Um, someone has to do that. And then someone picks the puck up from from your feet, like you don't, you, you know, you might not even touch the puck. Like there's something to be said for that guy, and maybe in the future there'll be more data behind, um, you know, what they're doing, and sort of there'll be more praise because mm. uh, mm. it's hard to unless you're looking at a lot of video. Like broadcasts sort of focus on these guys sometimes, but from a statistics perspective, it's like unless we have tracking data, how do we know this player is is you know. Effective. Is, is, yeah, is, is I don't know, even if there was a statistic about, you know, when this player's on the ice, how often is, is the other team stuck, you know, below their hash marks? Like, that would be interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and how many times is he below the hash marks p- pressuring them? Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, sometimes those players might not turn into um, anything uh, too impactful because maybe they, they're, they're not doing much when they're mm-hmm. in the corner. But there's a lot of guys that do a lot and then – the puck moves around and they don't get an assist. Like, so that's the the, the Hyman. Yeah, I guess. I guess yeah, it. yeah. And I remember the debate over the summer was just how you know if Hyman was so good at like puck retrievals and all of this, um, how come it doesn't show up in you know either his passing data or whatever the case is? You know, a lot of the plays sometimes um, 
we talk about coaches telling their players to finish hits. Imagine a player chasing a defenseman back into the zone. They finish that hit. They don't go for the puck, but they should have a support layer that comes and gets the puck. It's not up to that first forechecker right. to do the hitting, turn around, look where the putt, and find, and then create a play. It's up to them to do something to get the puck back and then the support layer. So in this case, when you have one of the best players in the league in Austin Matthews behind you, well, sure, if you exert enough physical force on those defensemen, do a cough-up, the puck goes to Matthews, all of a sudden the scoring starts He's going to make something happen. You know, it's yeah. just it's a natural progression of the play. Um I think that that's a bit of a, a – it's not well thought of. Like those type of players and those type of plays don't necessarily hit the radar. They're kind of subtle and you kind of have to be, yeah, that's a good play. Yeah, that's a good play. It doesn't even have to be a real physical hit. The threat of a hit can be yep. enough to cough things up. It's being – and I keep harping on this Presence. point. Yeah, you yeah. have to understand where you are in relation to the puck and what you have to do to get the puck back. Defense is not about shots and goals against. It's about getting the puck back. Offensive players, or sorry, I should say forwards, are not just playing defense when they're in the offensive zone, or sorry, in the defensive zone, or doing back checks or something. They're playing defense when they don't have the puck. So a good defensive, I did air quotes, yeah. <laughs> forward, Yes. is a player that does something to help his team get the puck back. And if we're going to be measuring defensive impact, we need to change the way that we measure defense. I don't know if we talked about this in the defensive episode, but when tracking data comes out, let's again, we're looking to the future, hoping for the best that this will happen. I think um, things like, I think there's like a, there's a basketball stat about, about gravitivity how, you know, if, if if Austin Matthews has the puck, you know, how many guys are, are, are just going towards him? Like, sort of it's like a star power and, and, and who's who's attracted to that star power. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder I wonder if there's there's almost a a digger version of that where where they're they're not getting sucked into that and, and their positioning is, is good enough that they're almost offsetting it, if that makes sense. Like and it'll show their defensive value. I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm explaining that right, but sort of um, it's something that's that's really difficult to pinpoint positioning, and I think that a player that is a quote unquote complementary player on a line maybe is 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 lost in the shuffle sometimes in terms of how they're contributing because we just you know we like goals we like fancy plays we like guys who touch the puck a lot and and just presence or just being in that spot. Um, you know, occupying one of the defenders when when you're attacking is making the world of a difference to your line mate. You know what I mean? And we've also kind of dumbed it down to the degree that we think that everything is about possession. Possession is about having the puck. Possession isn't about the shot differentials that we. I, I wish it, I wish it wasn't named that, like in mm. hindsight, because you know, it's it's a, everything. Like, well, it it obviously was presented as this is a proxy for puck mm-hmm. possession, and now everyone just says possession because it's a short form, right? And then you know it kind of gets lost in in the the rhetoric of in the discourse of of the whole situation, and you forget that oh, a shot on goal like that doesn't necessarily mean you had you had the puck a lot, and that's kind of why I say that we need to change the way that we measure defense because if we put such a value on possession that we need to be able to say that this person or this player, because we have women's leagues too, right? It's not just men's leagues. Yes, of course. This person does a fantastic job at doing something to get the puck back and get possession back. Whether that's uh, getting the puck back off a rebound because your players took a shot, of course he, and you go get it back, get it back to your your own players group, Mm -hmm. and now you get another shot on goal, Corsi, yeah, or a shot attempt. Now, that's important to me. That's a defensive play, but it's not marked as a defensive play. Um, and we can go on and on and yeah. on about yeah. all of this. I don't want to get into too deep a level, but we need to change the way that we view what a defensive play is in relation to the mindset that everybody seems to be understanding now how we want to have the puck on your stick because you avoid playing defense, you avoid shots and goals against and blah, 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 all the way down the line. I'm all for looking at the game in different ways and changing our thinking and the way we talk about it too. 
Um, we probably will. I don't I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no worries. But we probably will. I bet in five years we're going to have a very different mindset about what exactly makes a good defensive player. If defensemen are becoming more rover-like yes. and being more involved offensively, forwards have to be more involved defensively getting the puck back. So I bet within the next few years we'll see a dynamic shift in the way that a lot of the way that we used to assess players has changed. And I guess you, you've alluded to it throughout the podcast. Like it's, it's slowly changing where the forward is taking on more defensive responsibility and Skills. they're having a greater impact. And like you said, you're coming through the ranks. And, um, I mean, it's sort of a cliche, you know, uh, the skilled player comes and he's got to learn defense. Like a guy like Braden Point already sort of had that as part of his repertoire. That allows him to slide in. Um, almost seamlessly once he makes the NHL. And, and I would like to actually talk to Braden Pointer or whoever, you know, was around him growing up. I, w- I want, like, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't researched the guy enough, but I wonder if he was, like, what type of player he was growing up in minor hockey, if he was if he was really the most skilled player, and how that sort of, a lot throughout the years, if he was told, hey, add this to your arsenal. Because he seems like a guy that just has it all figured out at mm-hmm. such a young age. Mm-hmm. I know there's other examples out there, but... Um, I want to talk about now two brothers, Matthew and Brady Kachuk, who are I'm hesitant to say unicorns, but they're 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 part of a small group of players nowadays that are like there's there's parts of their games that are com- like absolutely prototypical power forward, but then you know it's like the other half, the the the, the Jekyll and Hyde, the Hyde part is like. You know, finishing ability and skating, and they just the the, the levels of, of all those qualities are so high that you, you don't really know what box to fit them in. And and I group them together because they're brothers, and and they have similar skill sets, and they're mean and they're annoying, and you know the the classic line of you want them on your team but you hate playing against them. Like there's something about these two players that I'm just I'm drawn to because the whole power forward position we'll call it the power forward uh, role i wouldn't say it's eliminated but it's taken a hit with, with smaller players coming in the league with physicality uh becoming uh less important we'll say um but here they are these guys who you know have all the skill in the world can skate very well and they're also you know banging around and, and chirping and they're just they're, they're they're a delight to see, and I hope they all they both continue on their trajectory. And they might even breed, you know, younger guys who are trying to be like them, and it ends up shifting things around, like we've seen with McDavid and all these other players. So now you have that element where you're getting players that are becoming. I, hold on, before you start, you went back and you had to take a. a I don't even know what you, what you did there. So, but but when I started talking about the Kachucks, you you seemed to. Uh, they are, there was something I said that set you off. They are the throwbacks that I think most people don't want to see in the league, but they have such a skilled component that you just can't help but just love to have these guys on your team, as you say. So it's interesting because if I was growing up and watching these guys as I was growing I I was born in 70, so yeah. I mean, you, you saw some pretty rough old hockey. guy, you yeah. know what I mean? Um, they weren't as skilled as they as they are now. Now you have players that are growing up and getting the developmental skills and practice and, and really putting them on display. And you could see it both in Matt and Brady. Um, but bringing that old school kind of physicality, that mean, aggressive, you know, they cross that line, but every once in a while, every player will do so. I think they're pretty good. Like from what I've seen, like, yeah, they might have the odd incident, but I don't think they're... They're not goons by yeah, any exactly. They're not, and that's what we're eliminating. It's not their it's not their role out there to yeah. do stupid things. It's just they get themselves in trouble here and there, and it's not um, trouble that's you know going to get them a twenty game suspension. And because the type of players that may have confronted these players in the past are no longer in the game, they become more villainy, villainous. Like they're they're more evil if you want to put it that way. Um, simply because they don't have that counter on any specific team. There's no enforcer to say, hey, guy, stop doing that. That's a good point. You know, There's no tough guy. Players are really tough and strong and physical, and they could probably all fight regardless of whether they're skilled or not. But how many players are really able to 
confront these players when they're doing all these little things. And it's not one incident, it's multiple incidents over the entire game. You can't always be on them. So there's there's that portion of me that says, you know, they're playing a style that may have been conducive to the 70s and 80s, but man, that skill level that they've brought makes this component that much more valuable to me because they could play, they can contribute to my team in winning, hitting all the points that it takes the skill, the character, the size, the whatever, to create scoring up and do the positive things to help my team win, but provide an entertainment value that you've kind of missing in today's NHL. You don't want to goon things up, but I don't mind players playing on that edge. Um, you have to kind of give them a little bit of leeway. At the same time, hey, guy, you know, that might be a little over the line, so you kind of ran them back, you know, but it's the skilled component that really makes them NHL assets. That other stuff is just... A component of you know we're too good enough we're too good to be playing any other particular league we are here because we are good enough to play in this league and we're just gonna say okay guys that's it let's bring it the the throwback uh mention is is interesting because now i'm picturing if you take away their skill let's say they're they're good skaters still and they're just these annoying players like I don't know how they fit into today's NHL with without the finishing or the or the you know they can stick in on a, in a phone booth sort of thing like that player you know let let's call him Milan Lucic but coming into the league right now I don't know how many Milan Lucic's are coming through now that are going to play at the highest level of hockey like obviously when you're already in the league you adapt and everything and and he's going to continue to be an NHL player and have his role but. Are teams looking for that for a Milan Lucic nowadays? An eighteen-year-old? I don't know. They might they might draft him, and he ends up in the AHL, and he might get called up. But I don't know if he if he holds that that job forever, like like a Lucic has. Lawson Kraus, that's the guy that. Oh, you just there you mentioned. go. Except I don't know. Is Lawson Kraus mean though? Well, he's I wouldn't call him mean, but he's physical enough to yeah. be intimidating. Let's use the word intimidating. Um, but, and this is the biggest point I feel. They were able to do those things in the developmental leagues because either they were, A, more developed physically than yes. the competition, and they were able to do that, and they got away with it. Every once in a while, somebody stepped up to them, but they were ready to accept that challenge. They get to the NHL, and all of a sudden, everybody's just as big as they are, but they're faster. And you can't play that fu- uh, that physical, I almost swore there, that physical, <laughs> okay, I swear if you need to. that physical, really aggressive style in today's NHL because you can't catch anybody. So... If you can't play in today's NHL, you can't use your aggressiveness because Lucic, without scoring goals, wouldn't have been in today's NHL. And he's there now because of some of the ways that he was able to score. And he's a good net front presence, blah, 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 all that stuff. But, I mean, when you look at Lucic, you don't think of him being a goal scorer. You think of the physical attributes and the aggressiveness and the fighting ability. He's a freak of nature. Yeah, it's crazy to think about that. But those aren't the things that make successful NHL players. Those are peripheral talents now. They're peripheral skills. So you get back to the Kachucks, and man... They could outskate you. They could outshoot you. They could put pucks in behind you, and you'll sit there and go, "How the hell did they do that?" And then if you decide to challenge them, they'll step up and they'll they'll accept that challenge and they'll initiate the challenging too. So, Lawson Kraus, not necessarily being a mean guy, but being intimidating and playing that type of physical bruising game, which he was able to really exploit as a junior, can't necessarily do the same things in the NHL. Can't score, can't be part of that offensive contribution. Those other skills, they just become wasted. Yeah, I wonder what what's going to happen with him. Um, I just can't see Because he was, he was in, in his draft class, he was the one guy. Everyone's screaming, don't pick him super high because, uh, you know, there's there's some question marks about his, his ability to produce offense at the pro level. And... Uh, I mean, I'm talking like it would be nice to see him, you know, develop and, and become an NHL player and a quality NHL player and someone who's playing in your top six. But it's the way it's shaken out, I don't know. And you have a kind of a lesser example in Nick Ritchie, who kind yes, of played yes. a similar physical, really took advantage of his size over the the rest of his peers. You know, he's found a niche. He's an NHLer right now. He's playing regularly in Anaheim, so not necessarily the big scorer that they probably thought that he would turn out to be but he possesses skills that allows him to play in the nhl with a nice mean or intimidating side that doesn't necessarily hurt the team that he's playing for all right gus thanks for uh, coming in i i think next time 
we'll we'll convene uh, when the top twelve is a thing. And you know, this is the top nine. We'll, we'll, no, I'm just kidding. That's going to be a while. That'll be years. So we'll, we'll we'll make it sooner than that. Jeez, John, the way that things are going, <laughs> that might be next week. Well, you're right. You're right. I'm waiting for the first team to just come out and say, like, at the deadline, we're picking up a fourth liner and, and we're making this a top a top twelve team. You're going to be the first phone call I make. Yeah, hey, John, Henry said it. So that's uh, February 26th is the deadline. We'll we'll do something on like February 27th. Cool. What do you Sounds think? good. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Gus. Thanks again. And uh, for for people listening, how how can they read your work? How can they follow you on Twitter? So I'm on Twitter at Cats Hockey, K A T S Hockey. Um, I contribute weekly to Maple Leafs Hot Stove and to Roto World. Um, I contribute a little less to McKean's Hockey, but I do all the work for the yearbook. So. Those are the spots. I introduced you as uh, McKean's analyst, yeah. but you've got a few other uh, spots. Well, McKean's is my biggest, like that's my contribution through. Yeah, at the end of yeah. the year. And when the yearbook hits, like I mean, it's uh, a labor of love, and it's from April to August. It's every day. It's crazy. Um, the other stuff, like I mean, being a Leaf fan growing up, being part of Maple Leafs Hot Stove, which is just fantastic in its own right. Uh, Roto World is just a peripheral of McKean's as well, and I do a once a week thing there too. So, and it gives me the analytics exposure that McKean's doesn't necessarily focus right. on. So I kind of hit on all my little passions. And yeah, that, that's why I had you that. in. You, you've got uh, your hands in different places, and you see the game differently than I think a lot of other people. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm always very appreciative for having it. No problem.